Amen. Good evening. Welcome to Grace. Y'all stand with us. We, we believe that our God is worthy of us singing out praises to Him. Uh, so we're going to do that. And we also have some scriptures scattered throughout the, uh, the song so that you can just kind of think about that and chew on that. So uh, let's sing out together.
Don't let them rejoice in my downfall, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Pray to God, thinking about our lives and how they compare to God, we are so grateful that you are a loving Father, always compassionate, always ready to guide us toward your paths. And uh, we think often how we feel apart from you because we've trusted in something else, because we failed to trust in your promises and your unfailing love. We failed to believe that you are really the best thing that there is possibly for us. Your guidance is the best possible thing that can happen in our lives. And to trust in those things sometimes seems so hard. So God, help us to see those areas where we have departed from belief and faith. Because of that, we trust in ourselves, we trust in other things. And we sinned against you in doing that. And now we feel like we are stranded apart from you. God, help us to know your arm around us, your encouragement, your delight in us. God, help us to be aware of who we are, who we are in Christ because of what you've done. Just reassure us, God, that you love us, you care for us, and you will not change. In Jesus' name, amen.
Yeah. 
to not fall back to their uh, Christless religion, right? Uh, everything in the Old Testament, he would say, is true, it's right, it's good, and it's pointing forward to this hope, this, this final consummation that we have in Jesus. And what I've been arguing, uh, which I think uh, can be kind of proven this parallel argument out of the book of Galatians, that says, what happens when we do Old Testament religion uh, apart from Jesus. That's just the same as going back to any other false savior, uh, any other place of security, any other habit that may have given us security in the past. Uh, when you fall away from Jesus and go back to those old things, you're settling for second best. You're missing out on the true salvation that we have in Jesus. Right? For all of us, there are things that have given us security. Uh, if for you, it may be uh, finances. It may be uh, some concept of family. It may be some kind of special relationship. Uh, maybe it's the bottle. Maybe it's pleasure. And I don't know what it may be, but for, for different people, there's different things that we run to for comfort, right? When, when life is rocky, when life is difficult. We go to these things for safety, for security. What the author of Hebrews is arguing is, is none of those things will ultimately save us. That only Jesus is the ultimate comfort, the ultimate security. Now, those other things that we go to in life may be good things, right? Pleasure is good. Food is good. Relationships are good. Money is good. And God gives us those good gifts uh, to glorify Himself, right? So these smaller gifts may give us temporary safety, may give us a temporary salvation or temporary help. But those things, those good things in life that we enjoy aren't supposed to be our ultimate satisfaction. They're supposed to point us to Jesus, who is our ultimate satisfaction. And so the author is pushing us to see that just because in the Old Testament there are these good things and right things, that doesn't mean you can just hold on to that and give up on Jesus when times get difficult. In our passage today, he's going to give us some particular understanding of the Old Testament worship, the way they would worship in the what they would call often the tabernacle in the Bible, or it was this tent of worship they would set up. Uh, later on, it became a temple, right? It became a permanent place of worship. Uh, but the way that they did the worship followed the same regulations when it was a movable tent and when it was a permanent, permanent temple, uh, in both time periods, they still had this particular order of worship that was set out of the Old Testament, uh, specifically in Exodus and Leviticus and some of those uh, early five books of the Bible. 
Uh, we give some clear instructions about how it's supposed to take place. And he's showing us this morning uh, that that's going to point us to this better way in. Uh, in. In Genesis, hold your place there in, in Hebrews, and I just want to read you one verse out of Genesis, okay? Uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, they got barred, right? They got kicked out of paradise. If you remember that story, uh, even those of us that aren't great Bible students, right? We, we, most of us know that story, that Adam and Eve... Uh, disobeyed God, they rebelled against God, and then they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 3.24, it says, They drove them out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which was this uh, winged angelic creature, not the little fat baby of Hobby Lobby, right? That's not really what cherubim look like, but they're actually kind of scary uh, creatures. And it says there's this flaming sword with them that turned every way to guard the way in to the Tree of Life. And so that's really where it began, this concept of us being outside of the presence of God. Being outside of paradise. And we all know what that's like. We, we all live that, right? We live outside of everything being perfect. We live outside of everything being the way it's supposed to be. We, we understand viscerally what that feels like. Probably today you've already experienced it, right? A bad weather, bad day, maybe arguments with people you love, maybe something breaking in your home or in your life. I mean, just, that's just part of our daily experience that things don't go the way that they should. Life is not perfect. Life is hard. And we're outside of paradise. We're outside of that perfection. And so in the Old Testament system, they set up this, this ritual set of worship to show us the way back in to the garden. Right? The garden's locked. We're, we're on the outside. And, and this setup of the temple and of the, the tent of worship shows them the way back into God's holiness, right? Where God is perfect, His perfect presence. And so we're going to pick up with it in verse 1 of chapter 9, understanding how this shows us the way in to God's presence. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, or of just perfect otherness of God. Verse 2 says, For a tent was prepared... The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. A lot of translations say the holy of holies. Verse 3, behind the, excuse me, verse 4. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, holding the man, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory. Again, the same cherubim that guard the way into paradise. They're now guarding in there the inner presence of God. So it's the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, which the New Testament tells us this atonement, this mercy that we find is now through Jesus, right? Well, that was typified in this place in the Holy of Holies. And then he says, these things we cannot now speak in detail. He has some kind of big picture stuff he wants to explain. He doesn't want to explain every item of furniture, but he wants to explain how... The, uh, the routine of worship teaches us. So verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates the way to the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first sec section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Father God, we pray that you would uh, teach us what your word is saying tonight. Um, 
God, we pray for understanding. Help us to have soft hearts. Help us to be receptive to what you have to say. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about uh, this, this concept, like I said, it really goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, of being locked out of paradise. I was just thinking of the everyday experience of, of being locked out of like your car and your house, right? Anybody here ever been locked out of your car or maybe your house? I'm sure it wasn't your fault when it happened. Probably somebody else did it. But you know what it's like to be locked out. You know what it's like to be locked out and, and want to get in. And I found an article, a newspaper article, about a woman in Pittsburgh that had found herself locked out of her home, and it was on Thanksgiving uh, in some Pittsburgh. Pretty cold Thanksgiving. I think here it was like sunny and 70. Um, not, not like that anymore. I don't know what happened to our beautiful weather. But, but in Pittsburgh, it's definitely going to be kind of cold and miserable around Thanksgiving. She finds herself locked out and wants to get back into her home. And so in, in that moment of, of desperation... Uh, frustration, whatever it might be, she, she did something that may seem strange to you. She actually set her porch on fire, um, which to me seems like an odd way to get into your house. But I think she, she thought it was reasonable in the moment. She thought, well, if I set my porch on fire, emergency services will come and help me get into my house. And her house burned halfway down. And when they got there, she actually got thrown in jail for arson and everything. So I mean, it wasn't just losing half your house, but then she's in jail. Too, and, and it's crazy, right? And, and we can kind of stand on the outside and, and look in and say, she's nuts, right? I mean, that, that makes no sense at all. But, but I would argue that we, we kind of parallel that kind of craziness in our own life, right? We, we find ourselves locked out uh, of paradise, locked out of the perfection where, where we want to enjoy things being the way they should be. And we find ourselves doing crazy stuff, right? I mean, you may never have check your car or house on fire to get inside your house, but, but we've all done things that we know at one level are, are wrong, or we know are not really going to solve our problem, but we do them anyway because we don't really know what else to do because we're, we're desperate. We're, we're not rational, right? We're not thinking clearly. And the Bible describes that as sin, that right when we turn to other things other than God himself to try to satisfy ourselves, to try to find hope and, and security, that that we're missing the mark, that we're sinning, we're looking to some other Savior. Well, well, in our text this morning, he encourages us uh, to look to Jesus. And what's wild is that we look to Jesus by looking through this Old Testament Levitical worship, this system, this priesthood that he set up in the Old Testament. We've said all along as we've been going through Hebrews that everything in the Old Testament actually pointed us ahead to the true way in, right? To the true Savior that we have in Jesus. All these things for us tell us about God, tell us who He is, and help us to understand the way back into paradise, the way back into His holiness and His presence. And the first thing that we see in the first few verses is that there were regulations that God actually speaks into our situation, right? We find ourselves barred outside of paradise, and God gives us regulations for worship. He gives us instructions. Here's the way back into my holiness, back into my presence. So there's regulations for the way in. Uh, in verse 1, directions, instructions. Verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So just very basic information here. God didn't just leave us, but He spoke into the situation. He gave us regulations. He gave us instructions to show us how to come into the presence of God. And verse 2 says, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. So there were two sections. There were really actually more outer sections than this, but he wants to just 
really highlight the differences between the two intersections. There was the holy place, and then there was the really holy place, right? The holy of holies, the most holy place inside that. It says in verse 3, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But he says that these things we cannot now speak in detail. I would encourage you to get a good study Bible to find a commentary and unpack what were these things, right? Aaron's staff that budded in the, the Ten Commandments and all these things that were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you probably know what the Ark is, right? It's this, this box, right, that holds these holy things. And on top of this box is what was called the mercy seat or sometimes called the atonement cover, which is where the blood was spilled for the atonement of the people. So all this stuff symbolizes the holiness of God and our need for a way into that holiness. And he's going to unpack, unpack this more. He says, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail, right? Because he's going to speak more about the difference between the sections than the actual uh, items within those sections. Okay, so he's kind of listed out. Here's some of the items from these different sections. But I'm not really talking about all those items. I'm going to talk about the fact that there are two separate sections. There's a holy place and a most holy place. I want to say just one small aside for those of you that are uh, Bible students and know your Old Testament, those of you that have memorized Exodus and Leviticus, uh, you might have caught the small, uh, what seems like a contradiction here, because in verse 4 he says it has the most holy place having the golden altar of incense. But if you read Exodus 30, it says the golden altar of incense is right outside the veil before you go into the Holy of Holies. And so some uh, liberal scholars, people that are looking for ways to disprove the Bible would say, well see, he's wrong, right? It's really outside the most holy place, the holy of holies. And what I would say is Leviticus 16 says that the high priest can't go into that doorway without taking the incense with him. And so what the author is kind of saying is that altar of incense is associated with this, this section. There's stuff associated with this section, there's stuff associated with that section. Doesn't really matter to the, altar, uh, to the author too much which side of the veil it's on, but it's associated with that section. Because in Leviticus 16 it says, can't get in there without the incense. So he associates that incense with that intersection. But again, he says, but we're not going to talk too much about this. So, so why does he give these, uh, this sketch of what's going on in the Old Testament? Why does he reference this? Well, again, going back to verse 1, I think what he's pointing out here, and we'll unpack more of this in the next verses, but what he wants to point out here in verse 1 is that God gives directions. God gives regulations for his worship, right? So that we understand how to honor him and how to enter in to his presence. God doesn't leave us without regulations. He doesn't leave us without directions. He doesn't leave us without instructions. He tells us the way in. And I think that's a huge concept for us here. Uh, there, there's a lot of people that might have the objection that, no, God hasn't given us directions. God, God's just kind of left us, right? We're just in this crazy world and we're on our own. We don't know what's going on. But, but the Bible says, no, God has spoken into our lives. He's entered into history. Christianity says He speaks to us and He guides us and He gives us directions. I was thinking about how when you're we're trying to find a way to a place you've never been before, uh, most of us now, in the old days, you'd, you'd ask a friend, you'd get out a paper map, right? But most of us now, we use computer directions, right? Anybody here ever use computer directions for something? I have a picture here of uh, a Google map from Fort Hood to this church building. Right? And I think these directions are, are pretty accurate. But sometimes when you follow these computer directions, there's a mistake. Right? Has that ever happened to you? 
uh, just Friday, we were going to a basketball game uh, in Austin, actually, uh, actually Chris's old church, and uh, we're going there to this basketball game at this church my son is playing in, and every point in the directions are correct except for the very last step. The very last step says it'll be on your left. But it was actually on your right. And so we circled the block like three times trying to find this place because we keep looking left. I don't see it. I don't see it. Finally, like, oh, there it is. There's a big sign on the right side. And so sometimes you may have had that experience where you were misled, where you were given directions and you were led in the wrong direction. And what I would encourage you is that the biblical worldview says that God gives us directions in whatever degree by which we're misled. It's not the fault of the directions, but it's our fault. I don't know if you remember last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 8. And it said the problem in the Old Covenant, the problem with the people obeying the Old Covenant was the people. The problem was us. We didn't want to receive the directions. So God speaks into our life and we say, I'm not really interested. Or even worse, we say, no, 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 I can't hear you, right? We just, we try to shut him out. And that's really, that's what the Bible explains about the human condition. Now, for some of you, you may say, that's, that's not me, I'm not like that, but... But generally, that's what the Bible says about all humans. And as I've grown in my faith, I've started to realize more and more, yeah, that is kind of me. I kind of live that out in my own life as well. Um, have you ever had, some of you have children, even if you don't have children, you may have seen this take place, you may have lived this out. Have you ever given your children specific directions? Uh, you've said, do this this way. And later on, you find that they've disobeyed you, and you ask them about it, and they said, well, I didn't. I didn't hear you right. Have I ever used that excuse with you, right? Well, I didn't understand what you wanted. And, and sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes you're like, okay, I understand. Uh, but it can become a discipline issue. If your child consistently doesn't hear you, uh, then you have to start disciplining them for not hearing you, right? Because it gets to a point where you realize they're just not receiving my instructions. It's not about me giving them. It's about them receiving. It's about them hearing them. And again, that's what the Bible says to us about the way we interact with God and His regulations and His direction for us. He gives us a map, and we say, no, I'm, I'm not receiving that. And we say, no, I didn't, I didn't hear you right, God. Or, no, I didn't, I didn't think you meant that, right? Is that what you really meant? And the Bible says, no, we're, we're rebels, that, that we don't want Him to direct us. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we want to do our own thing. We want to be our own gods. We want to go our own way. And so in Romans 1, it outlines this for us. In Romans 1, it, it clarifies this, and it says this is something that all of humanity struggles with. Romans 1, 18, says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So first of all, let's define unrighteousness. What is unrighteousness? Uh, it's not being righteous. Okay? Uh, it's not being perfect. It's not doing the right thing at every moment. It's not loving people perfectly all the time. So when it says we suppress the truth with our unrighteousness, it's not just talking to the bad people out there. It's talking to all of us, right? It's not just saying murderers suppress the truth with their murdering. No, it's unrighteousness, falling short of perfection. We're, we're, we're suppressing what God is telling us. God is giving us directions and we're saying, I don't want to listen to you, God. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And we suppress the truth. And it says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
So the, the biblical story is that God has clearly communicated to us. He's spoken to us. He's revealed himself to us. And we've said, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't want to be directed. I don't want to follow your, follow your regulations. So that's the first thing that we have to understand. To understand a biblical worldview. To understand what God has to say to us. Is he says, I've given you regulations. I've shown you the way in. And the first problem is that as human beings, we've said, no, we don't want to go in. We, we've rebelled. We've said, I'd rather stay outside of paradise. So in most of our life, we complain and we're frustrated because we don't live where everything's perfect and everything's right. But when he gives us the regulations for going back in, we say, no, I'd rather do things my own way. Well, well the next thing that he says, is he, he unpacks to us what that key is to get in that door. What's the key to unlock the door for the way in? So he says that these things we can't speak in detail, right? Verse 5, again, meaning, I'm, I'm not going to talk in detail about the lamp and the bread and the golden altar and all this stuff. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. That's what's there. But, but the way that these two sections interact, that's what he wants to speak of. That's what he wants to clarify for us. And so he starts talking about how the priests go often into one section, but they go very rarely into the second section. And when they go into that second section, they only get in with blood. So what he's telling us is that blood is the key into the presence of God. So in verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly in the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes. So only the high priest, only the head guy. And he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, just a quick aside, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, there is sometimes a distinction made between intentional sins and unintentional sins. Uh, and that's not really linguistically what he's saying here. This is more of a junk, uh, junk door term uh, in the Greek, which just kind of means sins, right? It's kind of a general term for ignorance and stupidity uh, and sin in general. So he's saying the blood uh, is for the purpose of covering both his sins and the people's sins. It's a, it's a general term here. But the important, the emphasis is that blood is the key. Blood is the way in. How many of you have ever uh, used keys before? Anyone ever used keys before? That's good, right? Because most of you have been locked out. I was going to say, if you've been locked out and never used keys, that's probably the problem. You might need to get some keys for that. I have a picture here of a, of a key for a door. Uh, so we, I mean, we understand this concept that uh, doors are locked. We use the key to open that door. And in the Old Testament, again, this picture is given again and again. We're shown that blood is the way in. Uh, to God's presence. That blood is the price that needs to be paid. It's the kind of language that's used often. Uh, next week we'll see this verse in chapter 9.22 that says it this way. This way. <clears throat> Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I think there's two huge things that blood points out to us. Um, one is that God is just. That there is a payment that needs to be made. That there is this life payment that needs to be made. That a forfeiture of life takes place when we rebel against God. And we'll see and we'll understand more that this other life can make payment for us. right? A substitute can make that payment. But there is justice. That God is a just God and a payment has to be made. Now I think this is particularly difficult for us. If I if I understand our culture, if I understand myself, and if I understand you, I think this is a particularly hard thing for us to hear. 
And part of it, I would argue, is because in the, in the place that we live now, kind of the lenses that we look through are 21st century American lenses that are kind of uh, Easternized, right? We, we've kind of been Easternized in our thinking. Uh, traditionally, there are, and this is a gross oversimplification, but there's you know, two huge uh, kinds of religion, right? There's Western religions generally focus on justice. And then Eastern religions generally focus on the closeness or the warmness and fuzziness of God, right? So you kind of have these two general categories that God isn't everything or God is close or God doesn't care on the Eastern side. And then the Western side uh, is that God is just and scary and holy and you better watch out, right? And we've talked many times here before that Christianity is the only religion that draws those two concepts of God together. It says God is absolutely just and God is absolutely gracious. God is absolutely far and other, but he's also absolutely close and warm. And our Father, he tenderly loves us. Well, I would say that because of where we live and the culture in which we live, we've, we've really kind of uh, been led more into an Eastern view, right? And even in our Christianity, which may at some points have you know, been a mix, like I said, of Western and Eastern religions, we've kind of been influenced by the Eastern view that God just doesn't care. That grace just means, ah, whatever, I don't care. There's no such thing as sin anymore. Right? That, that tends to be how a lot of Christians view grace and view God's justice. Uh, we kind of say, like, well, in the Old Testament, God was really concerned about a lot of things, maybe too uptight, right? He was kind of angry all the time. And then in the New Testament, he's laid back God. He's, he's cool and happy and doesn't care about sin. And we kind of grossly overgeneralize those things. But really, the story of the Bible is that God is absolutely just. And he is absolutely gracious. And the way that he's able to be gracious to us is that that just price is paid. That someone has to pay that price. And so that blood price is paid. And that's typified or signified in the Old Testament worship when blood is what was brought in to the presence of God. That was what they used to then come in to the presence of God. I think the other thing that blood signifies for us, the other thing that blood points to for us, it's just the horror of sin, right? How many of you uh, enjoy getting a cut and bleeding? Anybody here? It's kind of fun for you. Yeah, no, nobody really would answer that. I think when I was a teenager, I kind of thought it was cool. Maybe if I was doing something important because it made me feel tough. But in general, we don't, we don't like to bleed, right? If, if I bleed, there's this kind of panic feeling I get. You know, that kind of speaks to the magic power bandage. If you have little kids, you know, kids, bandages are magical and wonderful because they cover up. The blood, you know, they shield, uh, shield our eyes from having to see our own blood coming out of our bodies. Um, I know even, even some of you, just kind of knowing the way people are, some of you are, are grossed out that I'm even talking about it, right? Like you're, you're kind of trying not to listen right now so you don't pass out, because some people just can't stand the idea of blood. And I think, again, what that typifies for us is that sin is painful. There's a loss taking place when we sin. There, there's a tearing taking place when we sin. That there's, there's death, right? That, that that's not the way things are supposed to be. When we sin, uh, blood is to remind us of that. That is to remind us of the cost and the pain and the death involved in sin. I think for some of us, uh, when we become stuck in ongoing sin and ongoing habits, part of it is we misunderstand God's grace and we misunderstand the nature of our sin. You, you may have the concept of God is a God that just doesn't care. And because of that, you, you underestimate the horror of your sin. You don't realize that your sin is killing you. That, that you are tearing yourself apart when you sin. That I am tearing myself apart when I sin. 
And I think that's part of what blood shows us in, in this whole concept of the Old Testament, that it requires blood to cover our sins. It helps to remind us of the horror of sin, that it is something killing us, that it is something bad, that it's something painful. Well, the last thing that we see is, is the sign of the way. And what does all this signify? Kind of wrapping it all up. We've seen certain pieces of it that it signifies. But he gives kind of a summary here in these last few verses of what this shows us. In verse 8, he says, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. So he says a big summary of all of this is that we're still locked out. But that's a big part of what he's trying to show us. In this whole temple worship, this tabernacle worship, these rituals that are going on, part of what this is doing is like yellow caution tape saying, stand back. It's like a locked door. I found a, a picture of a, a no trespassing sign here, right? By the property, no trespassing. Part of what this ritual of worship is showing us is that we're still outside, that we can't get in. It helps to point out the, the problem, the disconnect here. He says in, uh, in verse 9, he says, which is symbolic for the present age. Um, present age here is just signifying this age that he's discussing, this old covenant age, this present age of the temple worship or the tent worship that he's, that he's discussing here. The two sections of the holy place, the most holy place. He says all of this is symbolic for that age. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 11 describes that, that old age for us. Chapter 7, verse 11, that's what we looked at about six weeks ago. In chapter 7, verse 11, it says, For perfection has been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? So if that old order, those rituals, the priests, the blood, if all that could have perfected us, why would there have been something else that came? He said, if you, could not, if you could not trust in Jesus, but trust in what they're doing in this Old Testament ritual, why would you have even needed Jesus? Why would God have even sent Jesus? And what he's trying to help us understand, what he was pointing out in chapter 7 and reiterating in 8 and now in 9, is that it couldn't perfect us. It couldn't complete us. It couldn't get us there. Hebrews 7, 18-19 says, For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We've talked about this before. The law doesn't perfect us. The law shows us God's perfection. And the law shows us that we're not perfect. So when we come face to face with God's law, again, we realize it signifies to us that I'm, I'm on the outside. I am broken. There's something wrong with me. I, I can't get into God's perfection. I can't get into God's holiness. And so we need a way in. That's what it speaks to in verse 19 when it says a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We can draw near to God. God is close to us because of God's action in history, in time, through Jesus Christ. So God is holy and other, and God is gracious, and we can draw near to Him. And Jesus Christ is the center point of that. He is what makes that work. He's what allows God to be both just and also gracious. Chapter 9, again, back to our chapter. Verse 9, so he's talking about this present age. And he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that can't be, or that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, 
imposed until the time of Reformation. This word Reformation, he doesn't mean the Reformation of the 1600s. 1600s, he means the time of straightening. Okay, literally, it's this word orthosis in Greek, right? We, we think of orthodontics like straightening of the teeth. It's, it's this time of things being fixed, okay? Things being straightened out. He's saying times we were waiting for that time, but until that time, we just had these regulations that reminded us of a need that showed us our brokenness, but couldn't actually complete us. And now in Christ, we have this thing now that can complete us. But this previous ritual, this previous worship cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And that's what we talked about last week when we talked about how the law points out our brokenness. And the law from the outside says, uh, you need to do this to be righteous. But we can't do it. But the new covenant writes that on our heart and writes that in our mind. In the new covenant, Jesus comes into us by the Holy Spirit. By faith, we receive, we are imputed with His righteousness. He gives us the free gift of His righteousness that He has earned for us. And that's then transferred to us. We can trust in Him and be adopted by God. And He can be our Heavenly Father. And God can be near to us. And we can draw near to God through Jesus and through what He's done. I want to challenge us tonight. How many of us, how many of you have come to the point of realizing that you can't get there, right? That your conscience hasn't been perfected. That the law is not enough to get you there on your own. Because a lot of religious people, especially here in the Bible Belt in America, right? We think if I just, I do good things, if I'm just a religious person, if I get my stuff together, then I'm going to be okay. Then I'm going to be all right. Then I can... And I can walk into God's presence because of who I am. Because I haven't murdered anybody and I haven't cheated on my wife. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be alright. And he says, no, none of those laws, none of those old ways of safety can get us into God's presence. It can't, can't perfect our conscience. It can't transform our internal motivations. It can't change our heart. It can't make us always desire what is right and good anymore. But we can only be perfected from the inside out through this new and better covenant, through this new and better way, through this hope can we draw near to God. And the author is saying again and again, this hope is Jesus. And I want to just conclude with verse 11 and 12, where he summarizes this, and we'll really hit this hard next week. But he says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. So the way into those holy places are finally achieved through Jesus. He says, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He gives us his final and perfect and complete salvation in himself. All those things in the Old Testament, again, were right and true and pointing to us the reality of our situation. But then Jesus comes and he says, I'll take you in. I'll take you in to God's presence. And now even in the midst of our brokenness, even as humans who are, are still not perfect, we can be in the presence of God. We can walk with God as our Father. We can pray like Jesus talked about in Matthew 6 to a God who is our Father who loves us. So as we continue to struggle with indwelling sin in our flesh, we can see it uh, just as uh, Jim prayed earlier with, with the Father's arm around us, right? That He's with us. We've drawn near to Him. We are in His holy presence. And we now work on that sin together. We're, we're no longer cast out, but we are now in His presence. He accepts us. He draws us in. He is close to us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.
Father, we pray that you would help us to live in this new hope. God, we thank you for everything that you taught us through the old way of worship. Helping us to realize that we are locked out. I pray for those uh, that are here tonight that maybe have never realized that, that, that they're on the outside because they can't get themselves in. God, help them to come to that point of brokenness. Come to that point of confession and realization. And then also come to find hope. A better hope in you. In your son Jesus who saves us completely. We pray in his name.